Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Women in the Word. My name's Amy Foster, and it's just my privilege to be here with you every week and study with you and get to know God a little more. Looking out at you this morning, and I'm just wondering how many of you enjoy musicals, like movie musicals? Have some musical fans out there? Me too, I love them. I grew up staying up late to watch them on cable, and even then, Technicolor was out of date, but I didn't care. Um, I was really excited a few weeks ago to learn there was a, a new movie musical that was coming out, so I gathered up my family and we went to see it. Um, my 19-year-old son was with us, he sat beside me, and pretty early on in the, in the movie, there was this scene when all of a sudden the lighting changed and the background morphed into something completely different and people started singing. And my son looked at me and said, this is so weird, what is happening? <laughs> And I realized he didn't grow up watching musicals, and he doesn't understand. They sort of step out of reality from time to time. Um, so he had to get used to that. But as I watched this musical, the other pattern I recognized is there's always this beautiful musical refrain. There's always a kind of a key piece of music that reminds you of the theme of the movie. And at pivotal times in the movie, sometimes really loud and sometimes really soft and subtle, you hear that refrain playing over and over and over again. So why am I talking about musicals? When our teaching team got together and started dividing up these lessons, no joke, today's lesson was titled Blood, Frogs, Gnats, and Fries, Flies. <laughs> and I just saw that and thought, oh no, that will not do. This is, this is women's Bible study. We need a new title. So I knew we needed a new title. And as I started studying, um, I realized God was kind of playing a refrain all through these two chapters. And if it were a song, it would be getting to know you. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. And I think that's what God is singing in these chapters. And he's singing because he's answering the arrogant question of Pharaoh that we heard back in chapter five. You know, God sends Moses to Pharaoh with a command, let my people go so they may worship me. And Pharaoh refuses and he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know him. And so everything that happens um, afterwards is God's effort to be known. He's introducing himself to Pharaoh here. And what Pharaoh says is true. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord at all. And so God begins to show him who he is. And the most important thing God is going to communicate as he introduces himself is that he is the sovereign God. He is sovereign over everything. Sovereign means he is the one king. It means he rules over everything. It means his power is over everything. It means his dominion has no boundaries, no borders like Pharaoh's does. It means that his will will be carried out. Nothing can stop his will. Nothing can thwart his plans. And that's a pretty powerful image of God that Pharaoh doesn't understand. But the other side of that is God is sovereign over everything, but he isn't this puppet master working from heaven, manipulating every single person. He's actually given man free will. And from Genesis 3 on, we see this history of humanity where man exercises his own free will. And in the midst of man exercising his free will, God is still moving history along according to 
God's will. And it's this curious interplay that has existed since the beginning of time. But in all of it, God is sovereign. Well, Pharaoh knows nothing of a God like that because um, Egypt was polytheistic at that time. And that means they had many, many gods. They made up gods. Some historians can identify as many as 80 different gods that the Egyptians made up and worshiped. We've given you a handout today that just lists about 20 of them. You're gonna wanna keep that with you and refer to it over the next few weeks. Pharaoh himself was actually considered a god as the firstborn of a royal household. His words and his wishes were considered divine pronouncements. He thought he could do no wrong. He has some things to learn about God. But the children of Israel have some things to learn about God too, don't they? You have to remember, they've been in Egypt and God's been silent for 400 years. They know he's the God that made a covenant with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there's so much about him they don't yet know. And God has given himself a name here that they have not heard before. Back in chapter three, he says, I am Yahweh, meaning, I mean, excuse me, I am, meaning the God who was and is and forevermore will be, the God who is self-existent, the God who is eternal. That's a part of God's character that they haven't fully understood yet. Exodus 6.3, this is on your verse sheet. God is saying, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So God is making himself known to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but he's also making himself known to his children, the Israelites. All that he's going to do in these next chapters will accomplish his purpose of making himself known as I am. Now, we also know that God has all knowledge, and so that's why he, he gives them some signs of what's to come, and he's already told them, Pharaoh is not going to let you go on his own will. Um, it's only going to be under the compulsion of my mighty hand that Pharaoh is going to let you go because his heart is hard. So that sets the stage for our musical, okay? God has decreed that the Israelites are to be set free. They're to go out on a three-day journey and begin worshiping God, and Pharaoh has refused and ask this question, who is the Lord? I do not know him. So we're gonna see God introduce himself to Pharaoh. Begin reading with me. This is Exodus chapter seven. We're gonna start reading in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And that's exactly what God did. Verse 21, the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, the Egyptians could not drink water, there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they couldn't drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. 
Okay, it begins with God declaring Pharaoh's heart is hard. That's not God's action there. That's God simply stating the condition, the way things are. Hard means stubborn, defiant, obstinate, unyielding. And from this hard heart, Pharaoh makes the decision not to let the people go. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. It's this confusing thing that goes back and forth between Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening his heart. In chapters seven and eight, we're gonna get six instances of Pharaoh hardening his own heart or Pharaoh continuing to remain hardened in spite of all that God is doing. And in that, you just have to know you're seeing this curious interplay between the sovereign will of God and the free will of men. And it's just confusing. What helps me understand it is God shows his sovereignty and he made Pharaoh, he created him. And just like you and me, he gave him certain physical characteristics and he gave him some attitudes, some character traits. I personally believe God created Pharaoh with a tenacious, strong spirit. I think that's part of Pharaoh's character. And then that strong character is neither good nor bad. It depends on whether we apply a soft heart or a hard heart to it. And I think we see Pharaoh taking his natural character trait and willfully being stubborn and defiant and unwilling to obey God and acknowledge God. That's his free will. Those are the choices he's making. But we also see God's sovereign design here. By God's design, there are consequences for the choices we make. And there are spiritual consequences for the choices we make here. And when we over and over again are unyielding to God, a consequence is our heart becomes more and more calloused and more and more hard until the point when perhaps God says, I'm hardening it forever. So it's both the sovereign will of God and it's the free will of man working together here. And it's so mysterious, we won't fully understand it perhaps until Jesus comes back and explains it all to us. But one thing that I don't think is a mystery, one thing I think is pretty clear is there's a warning for us as we see this increasing hardness of Pharaoh's heart. For each of us, repeatedly hardening our heart, repeatedly resisting God, it has a spiritual consequence. It does for all of us. And for those who don't know God, the spiritual consequence could become an eternal consequence. And that should be a pretty sobering thought for us. So it begins with Moses going out to the Nile to meet Pharaoh in the morning. This seems to be Pharaoh's morning routine. We're not sure why, but we're gonna see him there several other times. And clearly a warning comes from God. He's saying through Moses, obey me or else. Obey me or else. And God clearly communicates here, Pharaoh has been disobedient up to this point. And God, his holy righteous standard, when it's violated, he will respond with punishment. And so Pharaoh's given an opportunity to repent here or else punishment's coming. The punishment will be the first catastrophe or we call it a plague. And it's going to be God changing all the water in the Nile into blood. And I think God is introducing himself here and he, in two very distinct ways. First, he's making himself known as the God who is powerful over everything. He's powerful over nature because it is, after all, his very own creation. And he can actually change the substance that flows in the Nile River from water to blood to a completely new substance. That is power over nature, but it's also showing us that he's powerful over time both in the way he tells us exactly when it's going to happen, but also that water that they've already taken out of the Nile and stored it up in their containers, he's gonna change that water too. 
So he's definitely showing he's powerful over everything. I think he's also introducing himself, making himself known here as the God who is present. I am the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who can come right down into your daily circumstances and intervene and act. That's what he's showing him. So Aaron stretches out his hand over the river, the mighty Nile, and it does exactly as God said it would. It all turns to blood. Many theologians believe the Nile may be God's starting point for all these plagues uh, for a significant reason. The Nile was actually worshiped somewhat as if it were a God in and of itself. Um, the Nile certainly brought many benefits and blessings to their life. They were dependent on it for water. They were dependent on it for irrigation. They were dependent on it for fish to eat. Um, they pulled papyrus out that they used for writing. They were dependent on it for transportation. So it had many, many benefits to them. And, and here's part of who we are as human nature. Things that bless us and make our life easier, we are prone to worship them. We're all like that. And they have chosen to worship the Nile, the creation, instead of the creator. That's definitely one possibility what God is doing here. They also have a God, you see this on your outline, a God called Hopi or Happy. This was the God of the Nile. And they believed this God was connected to fertility. And so it's also possible that in God being powerful over the Nile River here, he's showing them He's way more powerful than their made-up gods and, and their worship of the Nile. Well, we see Pharaoh, he calls in the magicians. This is totally an attempt to discredit this miracle of God. He wants the magicians to come in and copy it. Um, and the magicians are able to do that. They're able to also take water and turn it into blood. Um, now, I want you to think how helpful is that to the thirsty people he takes the water that they need, the magicians take that and they turn that into blood too. That's not real helpful. We don't know exactly how they did this. It could have been a magician's trick, a sleight of hand. It also could have been that they were involved in the occult arts. You know, Deuteronomy references this often, that the magicians and the wise men were involved in abominable things that were associated with demonic forces. So we don't know how they did it, but they did it. We do know that God is sovereign, and that means he was in control of it, and he allowed it. And in this instance, it was just one more thing that allowed Pharaoh to continue hardening his heart. Well, the consequence of Pharaoh's sin and disobedience was decay in the land. It's pretty graphic. We know that the fish died and the water smelled terrible, but the consequence was also despair in the people's hearts. Despair and misery and hopelessness. Can you just imagine seven days without water? That's no water to drink, no water to bathe, no water to take care of your crops. In a, in a society that's dependent on their crops, no water to take care of your livestock, no water to wash your food, anything like that. It was a serious and significant problem for them that lasted for seven days. And we know that they were out, spread out all over Egypt, just digging in the ground, probably searching for water tables under the ground that might not be affected or springs of water. And so God has made himself known in this mighty act as the God who is powerful and the God who is present. And how does Pharaoh react? He reacts with an increasingly hard heart. He refuses to acknowledge God. And to acknowledge God means to listen to him and to obey him, to know him. 
Pharaoh in his hard heart refuses to do that. We also see in his hard heart, he's completely without compassion to the suffering that's going on around him. And it's suffering that he is responsible for. So we see his hard heart demonstrated here. He's unchanged, so God goes back and we have another cycle of warning and consequence. Let's begin reading chapter eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people. This is just like a horror movie, isn't it? With the frogs getting closer and closer and closer till they're in bed with you. Verse four, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. And drop down to verse seven. So the frogs came up and covered the land, but the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and then I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And so Moses prays and God allows the frogs to die out. But verse 15 shows us when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. I would characterize this passage with yuck. Yuck, 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 yuck. Frogs in your yard and frogs on your patio and frogs in your house and frogs in your bed. Yuck, yuck. I couldn't do it. Um, the former plague that had affected the Nile, that had certainly been devastating, but it didn't physically get all over them. And the frogs did. And we know that even Pharaoh was uncomfortable here because the frogs covered the people and covered the land. So back come the magicians. Pharaoh's inviting them back, again, hoping to discredit God. And what do the magicians do? They bring more frogs. Do you think anyone was happy about more frogs at this point? So again, we see their powerful art does nothing to help or benefit the people. It's actually only making things work. If this were a musical, you'd hear God humming, getting to know me. You're getting to know all about me, up close and personal here. Well, Pharaoh's getting to know God, and in his discomfort, he cries out for relief. He asks Moses, okay, go plead to God for me. Plead and ask God to take away the frogs, and then, only then, will I let the people go. So I think it's really important to look at that whole statement in making his request. He is acknowledging that God has some power, but he is not acknowledging a willingness to submit to God at all. He's actually bartering a deal. All right, you do this for me, God. Take away the frogs, and then I'll do this for you. He's bartering a deal as if they're equals. Quid pro quo, we would say today. And there's absolutely no sign of submission in what Pharaoh is doing here. Now, I love this. In order to prove that God is in total control of all of this, Moses says, all right, Pharaoh, name the time. 
You tell me the exact time you want God to bring these, take these frogs away, and in this way, God will be proven, and we will see how faithful he is to his word. God's goal here is unchanged. His goal is that they would all have knowledge of God, that they would all know who he was. Now, I don't know if you were puzzled by Pharaoh's answer. When do you want the frogs to go away? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will sleep with the frogs one more night. If Pharaoh had been a woman, the story would have been different, wouldn't it? All right, I thought that was crazy. Most of the theologians thought that suggested evidence of how seriously Pharaoh is resisting God. Pharaoh names this time out in the future, hoping that some other cause will affect the frogs, hoping that deliverance will come from some other way. Maybe they'll die, maybe they'll hop back into the Nile, and maybe we can discredit God here. Perhaps that was Pharaoh's goal in suggesting tomorrow. Uh, Moses answered, be it as you say. That actually means exactly as you say. Pharaoh, exactly as you say, so you will know there is no one like our God. So Pharaoh would know that this God who acts at the exact time he has promised is nothing like the 80 false gods in Egypt. And we see here the Lord was faithful. It says he removed the frogs exactly according to the word of Moses. Exactly. The frogs died away. They were swept into these big heaps of dead, stinking frogs. Again, yuck, yuck, yuck. Um, again, we see decay and misery that comes as a response to resisting God. It's possible God's using frogs here to display the impotence of other Egyptian gods. There was a goddess um, called Hecht. She had a goddess body and a frog head. That certainly sounds attractive, doesn't it? We're also told that they wore jewelry. They wore necklaces with frog heads on them because the frogs were also considered sacred. They were also signs of fertility, signs of resurrection. But it's possible God is using frogs here to show he's, he's in control of the frogs. Instead of there being a source of fertility and fruitfulness, they are now a source of discomfort and disgust and stink. So God is making himself known. He's making himself known by his faithfulness to act exactly as he said he would, but he's also making his mercy known here, and this is very profound. He's showing everyone that he is a God of mercy because Pharaoh's disobedience to God God could have handled that disobedience in an instant. God could have taken out his life immediately, but he doesn't. God gives Pharaoh an opportunity to get to know him, to repent, to turn back to him, and we see God's mercy here. First, he gets the opportunity every time there's a warning. The warning, there's a little space of time between the warning and when God actually carries things out. That's a chance for Pharaoh to repent. And then this is a great display of mercy here. The judgment was these dreaded frogs. God pulls the judgment away. He relieves them of the judgment. He's showing mercy. And I think what Pharaoh meant to be a trick for God tomorrow God used that as an opportunity to show his mercy. As that clock ticked every minute, waiting towards tomorrow when God would pull the frogs back, every minute was a moment Pharaoh had an opportunity to turn to God and to repent. It showed God's mercy. Job 2.13, excuse me, Joel 2.13 on your verse sheet 
It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. So God is showing his mercy, but with his hard heart, Pharaoh is abusing God's mercy. It's a great picture of abusing mercy here. A hard heart refuses to repent, refuses to turn back, even when God demonstrates his faithfulness in a miraculous way, even when God pulls those frogs out of all their houses exactly as Pharaoh had asked. Pharaoh relents. I mean, Pharaoh goes back on his word, and he refuses to let the people go. He's refusing to listen to God here. One author said, what thaws in the sun will freeze in the shade unless its nature is changed. And what we see in Pharaoh's recanting here is that his nature is unchanged, his heart is still unrepentant, and he's actually making it harder and harder and harder. So listen to what happens next. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, this is God's third judgment, his third plague, but this is different this time. It's swift, it's immediate, and there is no warning. Aaron simply stretches out his hand and all the dust in Egypt turns to gnats. Now, that word all is really important there. How would you describe Egypt? A dusty place, perhaps? Yeah, all the dust in Egypt. What is more numerous than dust in Egypt? Maybe grains of sand, but that's about it, probably. So God uses all the dust in the land and turns it into these innumerable gnats. And these weren't just pesky gnats that get in front of your eyes. Um, we believe these were stinging gnats that leave little bites and sores all over your skin and all over the animal's hides. So God is using the tiniest, peskiest part of creation, but in vast numbers, they are able to completely cover every human being and every animal. This judgment is very severe, very immediate, and very widespread. God is making himself known here, and he's letting it be known that he is a God of judgment. He is, he's a God with a holy, righteous standard, and when that standard is violated, there will be a response. He's showing Pharaoh that he can be a swift and immediate judge. Psalm 7, verse 11, explains God's character as the judge. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. So I think this is the point in the musical when the magicians start putting on their tap shoes and they start singing, getting to know you because they are getting to know God. 
They are seeing him as he is and they are understanding him. They can't copy this, uh, this turning dust into gnats and what that shows here is God's been in control of their magic tricks all along and they recognize that. The magicians actually are publicly acknowledging God. I want you to look there at verse 19 and look carefully at their words. They don't call, this is the finger of God not the finger of the Hebrew God, one among many, one among our collection of 80 gods, the finger of God, capital G. And that, um, the way they illustrate that, the finger of God, they're suggesting this God is so powerful, just with his finger, he's doing these things in the land of Egypt. This is a confession on the part of the magicians. But Pharaoh is not confessing with them. He's still resisting and refusing the instructions of God. And so what we see in him is a hard heart. As it becomes increasingly hard, it refuses to listen to wise counsel. These were Pharaoh's wise men, his advisors. And as their hearts change, he refuses to listen to them. He just becomes more obstinate and unrepentant. Now God is clearly judging Pharaoh here as he makes himself known, but he's also judging all these gods of Egypt. Um, he's Perhaps here he's judging the false god named Set, who was the god of the desert. Um, what he's doing, he's giving everyone an opportunity to compare your impotent gods to this god whose power is vast, whose presence is everywhere, whose sovereign will is being carried out. And I think that comparison was probably very startling to a people who had a bunch of different gods who didn't do very much. I want you to listen to this description. This is by C.S. Lewis, and he describes people getting to know God. Um, he's talking about people who don't believe in one distinct personal God, um, but people who have numerous gods. And he says, their God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There is no danger to that at any time heaven and earth should feel awe at his glance. But God, our God, the creator king, he's a God who is there. And his intervening presence is terribly startling to discover. And I think they probably were shocked and frightened and startled at this point to know there is a living personal God and he says, I am, which means I see you and I hear you and I know who you are and I know what you're doing and I'm gonna come down in your midst and I'm going to act. I think that was probably scary. Lewis goes on to say, there comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that, but we're still supposing he has found us. Don't you think that's what they're thinking in Egypt at this point? This realization of God would definitely be terrifying if God didn't also show them his mercy. But he shows them that he is a God of mercy at the same time he shows them he is a God of judgment. So now Pharaoh refuses again, so the pattern begins again, and we go back to the water of the Nile in the morning. They're gonna meet Pharaoh and give him another warning from God. This begins in verse 20. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let them go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did it, and it tells us the land was ruined Ruined by the flies. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. The offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So we know that Moses pleaded with God, God relented, not one fly remained. And one more time, Pharaoh goes back on his word, verse 32 says he hardened his heart this time also, and again did not let the people go. All right, the warning that comes to Pharaoh this morning on the Nile is obey me, Pharaoh, or else. Obey me, or else, blood-sucking gadflies. Yuck, right? Um, they will begin with Pharaoh like most of the other plagues. They will come to Pharaoh's home first and then spread to his servants and his people and the land of Egypt, completely filling their houses, completely covering the ground. So if it's that complete, you can imagine how visible it would be if they're covering everything. It's like a big, dark film that you can see and you can experience. And that film covers everything in Egypt except except the land of Goshen. We don't know exactly where Goshen is. It was probably in the Delta region down there. Goshen is where the Israelites settled when the 12 brothers came up and were reunited with Joseph. And they've been there ever since. Goshen is the land where God's people live. And the film, the pestilence, the plague visibly covers all of Egypt, but not Goshen. God is drawing a boundary line around his people. He's making them distinct. He's setting them apart and he is protecting them as his special possession. You know, two things are, are really prominent here. God is covering one group of people with judgment, with these horrible stinging flies, and they believe these were the kind of flies that left welts and sores all over your skin where, where, they, where they bit you. So God is covering one group with judgment, but another group is supernaturally protected from God's judgment. That is such a picture of God's people. And he does it so you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. The flies came and the descriptive word that we get for their uh, response was ruined. 
The land was ruined, but Goshen was protected. And I think ruined is a perfect uh, picture for all who are apart from God. All who are separate from God are ruined. Um, all who continually harden their hearts, who refuse to know, who refuse to submit, they are ruined, they are without protection, and they are without hope. It's a picture for us today. You know, Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 lets us know the wages for our sin is death. God is a holy and righteous God, and there has to be a payment for our sin. And if we aren't covered and protected by God, we are ruined. We are eternally separated from God. And the truth is we all deserve to be ruined. We all deserve to be separated from God. But God shows himself as a redeemer and a protector and a deliverer of his people. John 3:16 gives us a picture of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish or not be ruined, but instead have eternal life. God is making himself known here as the redeemer. He's the redeemer of Israel, saving them for ruin, and it's a great foreshadowing of the redeemer that he would send in his son, Jesus Christ, who suffered on a cross in our place, who paid our penalty, who bore our shame. He protected us from eternal ruin, eternal separation from God, if we would simply submit and follow him. God is letting them know he is a judge, but he has always been a redeeming God, and that's what they say here. see here. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He's showing that right now. Well, we have reason to believe Pharaoh was pretty uncomfortable this round because he again calls Moses and Aaron and he's begging for relief. He says, go, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Yeah, but that's not what we've been, that's not what God has commanded them to do all along. Go on a three days journey. So don't be fooled by this. Pharaoh's heart is still stubborn and hard. He's trying to compromise the commands of God by keeping the people within the land. Um, and here's a part that's most likely obvious to everyone, this request to go on a three days journey. Here's what that means. Three days of traveling takes them outside the boundaries of Egypt. Three days traveling takes them outside the control of the Egyptian army, and three days traveling takes the Israelite outside the dominion of Pharaoh. Pharaoh knows this, so he is not going to agree to let them go far outside of Egypt. He's unwilling, he begins to negotiate with Moses. He doesn't quite understand he's really negotiating with God here. But Moses says, no, that's possi not possible. For them to offer sacrifices to God, those animals were considered sacred to the Egyptians and their law mandated that they would have to stone people who sacrificed those animals. So Moses has a soft heart. He refuses to compromise the instructions of God. He stands firm against Pharaoh here. Pharaoh offers another compromise. All right, I'll let you go, but don't go very far. And then plead for me. I'll let you go not very far, but you plead for me. Plead for me means entreat your God for me. 
beg for me. It's Pharaoh crying mercy just a little bit. He's asking for relief, and Moses agrees, but Moses warns him, don't go back on your word, and Moses says, you're cheating God. And did anybody just cheer for Moses in this moment, thinking, man, he's not timid now. He's calling Pharaoh a cheater. Pharaoh, who's considered a god. Moses is pointing out, you're not a god, you're a cheater. So it's bold and it's mighty, but I think Moses wants Pharaoh to know God in this instance too. Now I thought this was really curious, Pharaoh's repeated attempts to negotiate with God. You know, when my boys were younger, they had numerous friends who'd come over to the house and play, and I remember one little boy vividly, he was tenacious to say the least, and I always knew when he came to our house, they were going to ask for outlandish things, permission to do ridiculous things that I was going to say no to, and then this little boy was going to approach me to negotiate with me. That's how it always worked. If I said, yes, you may sleep in a tent in the background, he would come tell me that they've made a better decision to pitch their tent at the park down the street. Whatever I said no to, he came to negotiate. And he truly was endearing, and I admired his tenacity, and I know he will be wildly successful one day. But there was one thing he never understood in those negotiations. He and I were not on equal terms when it came to my children. He had no authority over my children. He didn't recognize my authority, and he didn't recognize his own lack of authority. Now, we can laugh about that when we see it in a little boy. It's not quite so laughable when we see it in Pharaoh negotiating with God here. He has no idea who he's dealing with. He doesn't know God, but Pharaoh also doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know he's not a God. He doesn't know he's not equal with God. He's a sinful man in need of mercy. Well, Moses agrees to the vague terms. He's gonna let the people go not too far. Moses asks God to relent. And God does, and the language says, not one single fly remains. Not a single one. That is the totality of God's mercy. That shows the totality of God's willingness to forgive. All in that statement, not one fly remains. God is ready to hear a sinner's confession. God is ready to redeem a sinner's sin. God is ready to pay the ransom and rescue people from eternal ruin. But God will not be cheated and God will not be mocked. That's true, isn't it? He won't be cheated by false submission. He won't be cheated by false repentance. And Pharaoh cheats God another time. When the flies are removed, Pharaoh goes back on his word and he's not going to release the children of Israel. And so what we see there in his hard heart, he's motivated by comfort and ease. He's motivated by relief. He wants relief and his own physical comfort. He never wants to submit to God. That's what's driving Pharaoh here, but God will be known. He will either be known as the redeemer who delivers the people who submit and yield, or he will be known as the judge who allows people's hearts to become increasingly hardened and calloused as they cheat him. As I read this story again, I think there's a risk for us when we study Exodus and the plagues and everything else we're gonna see. And the risk is the story is so familiar, isn't it? Maybe you're like me and you can't remember the first time you heard it in a Sunday school class when you were a young child. Or maybe you've studied it in other Bible studies or maybe you've seen the movie, right? We're all so familiar with it and I think the risk when we're familiar, we put Pharaoh in the category of villain. 
and we immediately identify him as the antagonist. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually compare myself to the villain or the antagonist. I wanna compare myself to the person who's being righteous and good here. So I think the risk is that when we see Pharaoh as a villain, not as a human being, we miss the warning that's out there for all of us. And I just wanna confess something to you. I'm a little bit like Pharaoh. I really am, you know, God created me By his sovereign will, he made me the way I am. He gave me curly hair, he gave me green eyes, and he gave me a strong, tenacious will. And my mother wrote it in my baby book before I was two. (laughs) She said, you come from a long line of strong-willed women. You fit right in. And that's true. And so what that means is that strong will, it's neutral, it's not good or bad, but every day I get to choose. Do I use that strong will with a soft heart or with a hard heart? What kind of heart do I apply to that when I yield and submit and obey God? The byproduct of my strong strong will is faithfulness and perseverance and endurance and God is glorified. But when I apply a hard heart and I'm stubborn and I choose my own way and my own comfort, God is not glorified and the byproduct is a heart that gets harder. And so I think you've got a great opportunity. Consider how God made you. What is your character? What is your character and what happens when you use your character with a soft heart or a hard heart? We have to be heart checking all the time because we all have a little bit of Pharaoh in us. So some questions for us to ask, am I listening to God? And not just listening, but acknowledging him as the sovereign God over everything and obeying him. Because in every act of disobedience, we are hardening our hearts. Ask, do I abuse God's mercy? Not really repenting of my sin, not really being grieved that I've disappointed God, but just wanting some relief from the consequences. That's an abuse of God's mercy. Do I listen to wise counsel? even when they tell me things I don't wanna hear, even when they tell me that I need to change direction, or am I like Pharaoh and assume that I can be the judge of everything? And I think the ultimate heart test is this. Do I live for God, or does he live for me? That's what we see in Pharaoh. He's a man who seeks all the relief and comfort and respite that God can offer, but he never seeks the will of God, the glory of God, and he never has a desire to submit to God. He thinks that God lives for him. What's so interesting to me is God is not making himself known in Exodus so that he can live for us. And he doesn't make himself known to us today as a God who lives for us. You know, think about what he said so far. Let my people go so they will have liberty and freedom or so they can be their own master and ruler. Let my people go so I can just serve them and bless them. God never says that. Every time he says, let my people go so they can serve me so they can worship me. And the word for worship that's used here, this is so interesting, the Hebrew word for worship that's used in Exodus is the same word that means to be a slave. Let my people go so they can be my slaves. God is redeeming the Israelites with a mighty hand, expecting them to know him, and once they know him, they will willingly submit to him as a servant of the Most High King, and he does the same thing for us today. You know, we've got this great visual image. They served in Egypt like this, with their hands bound, 
under compulsion against their will, God has a better picture for them. He wants them to serve like this. He wants them to serve the God that they know and the God who deserves to be submitted to and worshiped and glorified. He wants them to freely serve. And the truth is we're all serving something. We're not serving Pharaoh, but we may be serving our own sin that we struggle with. We may be serving our own idols and God wants to set us free from those things so we can serve him. And a soft heart is what is required. When our hearts are soft, God breaks all the bindings that trap us and hold us and enslave us and he makes us his worshipers. So I think in response to Pharaoh's foolish question, who is God, God shows them and he makes himself known in Isaiah 46, nine, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Let's pray. God, you are God and we are delighted to know you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you allow us to know you. We thank you that our whole lives can be a process of getting to know you more. So our desire is that you would keep our hearts soft, Lord. Let us be diligent, let us persevere with a desire to be soft towards you so that we can serve you and worship you more each and every day, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.